Um, Mark chapter 13, and our text is going to be verses 5 through 10, and we'll talk about some of what's happening around that as well. But Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 5, Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils and in the synagogues. You shall be beaten and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. It was a little over a hundred years ago in in June of 1914, that a 19-year-old boy named Gavrilo Princip walked up to a car carrying Archduke Franz Ferdinand and fired a shot into his heart, murdering the heir of Austria and sparking World War I. Of course, the powers that be at the time didn't call it World War I. Do you remember what they started calling that war? It was quickly labeled, well, this is the war to end all wars. Yeah, it wasn't. A little over, uh, several years later, as those uh, events and those conflicts finally resolved, the conclusion of World War I led directly into the, the bitter feelings and national conflict, which would uh, threaten to erupt into another confrontation. But there was this man, British, uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was convinced he could avoid the violence. He flew to Munich and, and uh, negotiated with this rising power of a man named Adolf Hitler and came back with a piece of paper. He says, this has both of our names on it. And he told England when he returned, I have come from Germany with peace for our time. But he didn't. Back in Germany, Hitler never stopped planning the invasion of Poland, which would spark World War II. We can either keep having brief little history lessons like this, or we can simply learn from the word of Jesus in our text. A war to end all wars, or peace in our time, is too optimistic a goal when we're dealing with a world that has fallen into sin and human hearts that are continually set on evil. He says... There will be wars and rumors of wars in verse 7. And he adds, for such things must needs be. Or in other words, this is what has to happen. And so in this past week, when another evil world leader sparked another armed conflict with yet another unprovoked cause, how do we see this through the lens of Scripture? What's a Christian worldview? We don't react to it with an indifference or far from indifferent about it. But we also have no need to react with a kind of dumbfounded shock or undue anxiety. The world has not 
turned upside down. It is still spinning through history exactly as our Savior said it would. So what I want us to remember this morning is that a Christian worldview tells us that there will be no war to end all wars or peace in our time until Jesus returns as King of Kings, declaring himself the victor of the greatest war and securing for his people peace for all time. So first, let's consider the fact that war is not new. War is not new. If you're familiar with the flow of biblical history, you're well aware that there's always been war. Abraham had to take up arms and go chase down five different kings' armies in order to rescue his nephew Lot. To the ancient Hebrews who had just escaped from Egypt, the Their national enemy at first was the Amalekites who kept attacking as as they wandered through the wilderness. The Amalekites would come and attack the people who lagged behind, the weakest, the youngest, the oldest, the, the ones that were slowest. Then the enemy became the Canaanites, the pagan idol worshipers who who occupied the promised land. Soon, God's own people went to war with each other. They, the, the nation of Israel split into two nations. The northern nation, which kept the name Israel, ultimately ended up losing a war to the Assyrians and being taken into captivity. Only God's miraculous intervention kept the southern nation of Judah from suffering the same fate. But even later, Judah would fall to the Babylonian army. And they were taken into captivity. And the Babylonian Empire was violently conquered by the Medo-Persians. And the Medo-Persians fell to Alexander and the Greeks. And the Greeks eventually are all conquered by the, the Roman army. World history is a history of war. It's been estimated that of the last 3,500 years of human history, we've only seen true peace between nations in less than 300 of those years. Or another way of saying it is, the world is at war 92% of the time. And you know why that's still happening? Why why one nation rises and another falls and, and territory gets swallowed up by this empire and the cycle just keeps going? It keeps happening because as of yet, nobody has really won completely. Every victory has proved temporary. Now, war was certainly not a foreign prospect for the people who are in our text. Jesus and his disciples, who had just been in the temple in Jerusalem, would have seen in that temple there were heavily armed Roman soldiers who were pacing on the top of the outer walls around the courtyard of the temple, standing guard over the residents of Jerusalem because they were an occupying army. The Romans liked to brag about what they called Pax Romana, Roman peace. You know what Roman peace was? It's the, it's the sound of, a, of an armed legion marching down your road with rattling shields and gleaming spear tips. Roman peace was the, the slightest insult toward Rome being answered by lining both sides of your street with your crucified neighbors. That's what Roman peace was. For those of you who are here on Wednesday nights, you may remember we dealt with this text a couple of months ago. The setting here is that that Jesus is very close 
to the end of his earthly ministry. It's the, it's the final week. He's been entering into Jerusalem every day and turning at night and leaving Jerusalem and going probably to this little village called Bethany, which was down the mountainside of Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives and, and just over the peak of the Mount of Olives. In the previous chapter, He's been debating with the Jewish leaders in the temple and now they've left the temple. And as they leave the temple, his disciples begin to remark about just the the amazing architectural feat involved in in the the building of the temple. They've taken massive stones and uh, they've put them into this structure that's up on the top of a mountain. Look at verses one through four. It says, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. They're just amazed by the structure. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? So it seems very likely that Jesus and the disciples had left the the backside of the temple that was on the edge of Mount Zion, at the very top in the city of Jerusalem. There was this enormous courtyard that had been built around the temple by, by Herod the Great, including some solid stone building blocks which historians estimate some of them were up to 37 feet by 12 feet by 18 feet. If you want to imagine that, here's how you imagine it. You start at the one corner in the very back corner of the sanctuary by the sound room. The opposite corner of the block would be up here where the camera tripod is, and it would be as tall as almost the top of our sanctuary ceiling. One block. And they're amazed by this. And of course, they have a right to be amazed by this. It's, a, it's an astounding feat. But you see what Jesus said? <laughs> don't, don't get too impressed. Right? You like that? Because there's going to be a day coming where there's not one of those blocks that are left sitting on top of another. They're all going to be thrown down, probably thrown down the mountainside. And so they keep walking and as, as they go down the the eastern slope, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the, the western slope of the uh, Mount Zion, and then they go up the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. They, they get up there to where they're looking over on the other side to where the temple is. And four of his disciples in verse 3 come and ask him the question in verse 4, which is essentially not one stone left on another. You want to explain that? When is that going to happen? The way Matthew records it in Matthew 24, verse 3 is, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? For the disciples, such a cataclysmic event as dismantling the temple, the only conclusion they can reach is, well, that has to be the end of the world. And so let me just say, my friends, take, take heart. If your reaction to this week's violence is, well, is this the end? You're not the first ones to ask a question like that. What follows in Jesus' answer is 
frankly, more complicated than we're going to deal with completely this morning. All of Mark 13 is the Olivet Discourse, meaning this is a sermon Jesus preached as he was on the side of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple, addressing this question. Matthew's gospel actually devotes two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, to the Olivet Discourse. So we're not going to try to dismantle that whole thing this morning. But what you need to know is that Jesus uses this as an opportunity to essentially identify two important events on the, on the timeline of human history. The first event is answering their questions. When, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And, and, it, and it's dealing with that historically. That happens in about 70 AD, just a, a handful of decades after Jesus preached this message, about 35 years after his death, burial, and resurrection, the, the Jews revolt against the Romans. Um, a Roman general named Titus, he later actually becomes emperor, a Roman general named Titus brings his army and puts down the revolt with no mercy. Jerusalem was put under siege. People were starving. They were executed if they were caught. The temple was destroyed, just like Jesus said. It was a time of great affliction. And so Jesus identifies that point on the timeline of humanity, but also he identifies another point on the timeline of history. He uses this as an opportunity to teach about what really will be the end, his, his own coming. You can see down in verse 19, a time of affliction unlike there ever was uh, or ever will be again. He says in verse 24 and 26 through 26, there's going to be tribulations. There's going to be signs in heaven uh, and his return in power and glory. Right? So for our purpose this morning, you need to understand that Jesus has some things to say to his disciples about, okay, here's a point on the timeline that's coming next. And, and here's this point on the timeline that's far in the future. What's going to happen at the end when he returns to the world as king of kings and rules over the whole earth? And in addressing those two points, we're, we're in between, right? One, one is in our distant past. One is it still at some point in our future. So we are between these two points that Jesus describes. And he talks to his disciples about what to expect on the timeline between those two points. So if we understand that war isn't new, then we'll also see from the text, war is not going away, right? As Jesus tells his disciples, here's the expectation for, for world history. Here's this event in 70 AD, and here's this event that's actually at the end, and here's what time's going to unfold like in between. He tells us what to expect in verse 7. You'll hear wars and rumors of wars, but don't be troubled for such things must need be, but the end shall not be yet. There'll be wars. You'll hear about the possibility of more wars. I, what, I, what I think is meant by those two terms, by the way, wars and rumors of wars, is there will be wars right there where you're at and you're also going to hear about other wars that are far away like we hear now in the Ukraine. There's going to be the general tenor of the world is conflict until the return of Jesus. But in the middle of verse 7, 
you'll see that there's a, 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 a word of divine instruction and a word of divine initiative. The instruction is, be ye not troubled. That word ye there is plural. It's, it's, it's y'all, right? Y'all, calm down. The wars which rack this globe are not a cause for Christian anxiety. And why does Jesus give this divine initiative that we should, we should settle our minds in the face of war? Well, the answer is found in the design, divine initiative displayed throughout all history. He says, for such things must needs be. Every act of evil aggression, every armed conflict over the face of this earth, it is all happening according to God's sovereign plan. If I can simply paraphrase this divine instruction and divine initiative, it would be, y'all calm down. It's got to be this way. I can't begin to fathom the hundreds of thousands of minute details that conspire together to bring about God's plan for the future of the world. But I can trust the words of my Savior that says, it's got to be this way. Because God is the master strategist. He's moving the world's princes like pawns, working all things according to the counsel of his own will. And we can know that whatever befalls our world is only such things as must need be, he says. Can't we just trust the, the goodness and grace of our Heavenly Father and not be troubled as Jesus commands us? This, this exhortation from Jesus is just as true for Christians in Kiev as it is for Christians in Kansas. The only difference is at this point in time is that it is much easier for us to say this from the comfort of our couch than it is for them to say it in the chaos of the front lines. But you may have even seen a video that's been shared this week of Ukrainian Christians holed up in a bunker singing, he will hold me fast. They are taking this as a a word of comfort. And how quickly our comfort turns to chaos is entirely up to the Lord and what he determines must needs be. Be certain the day could come when, when rumors of wars to us become the reality of war to us. And so let us take solace from this command today and that day when it comes. Nothing is happening that is beyond God's control and beyond God's design. Not only does Jesus assure us in this world that we are not to have our hearts agitated because of the things that we see happening, he goes on to explain more in verse 8. He says, For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrow. National conflict clashing kingdoms. Jesus, in verse 8, seems to put that into the same category as natural disasters like earthquakes and famines. 
And, and to the human mind, we, we have a hard time classifying those things together because we think, we think you know, gun battles and, and tanks and, and warplanes are the products of humanity. Those are the things that people do while earthquakes and tornadoes and famines, those are the things that happen to people. But a biblical worldview that's focused on the lens of God, through the lens of God's word is going to tell us that's just not the case. They are in the same category. We get a hint about this when Jesus says that these wars and natural disasters, he says in verse 8, they're the beginning of sorrows. Let me tell you about that little word sorrow. It's the Greek word odin, and it means birth pains. The Apostle Paul used that very same word in the very same kind of context in Romans 8.22. He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors in birth pains together until now. The whole creation, everything in this world is struggling. It is groaning. It's experiencing birth pains. Paul says, God created this world and he created an earth where there was no sorrow, there was no pain, there was no conflict, there was no war, no earthquakes, no famines. He did not make a single thing that he couldn't look at in his perfect holiness and divine virtue and say, that is good. What changed? Who changed it? When Adam in willful rebellion, rejected a life of submission to God's authority and God's commands, sin entered into the world. And just as God promised Adam would happen, death crept into the world along with sin. And if we maintain that as a a biblical worldview, then we have no problem classifying Wars and earthquakes and famines all into the the same category. They all fall under the umbrella of the deadly results of sin. And so Jesus categorizes them here together in verse 8. The deadly results of sin, they're going to continue. You're going to see them. Until we're clear in our minds that this world, every aspect of this world, is plagued by sin. We're going to have a hard time reconciling the headlines that we read every morning. That's a fact on the global stage. And it's also true in the smallest recesses of the human heart. Listen to what James says in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, from whence or where? From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. James says that wars and disputes of all kinds find their source in the selfish lusts in which people are more willing to satisfy themselves through violence than they are to trust God to provide what they need. Unfortunately, though, James is not there talking about wars between nations and clashing with kingdoms. He's talking about fighting between individuals. Because ultimately, the same kind of selfish ambition is what leads to wars among nations. 
Listen, if we were to allow ourselves a, a few moments of honest analysis, we'd find that there is a startling similarity between a man who would say, um, go to the property line of his house and maybe move one of those little landmarks further into his neighbor's yard and get a little bit more of his neighbor's property. There's a startling similarity between that and a Russian dictator sending his war machine in to get a few cities and provinces from his neighboring country. Listen, the very sin that is bound in the heart of Vladimir Putin is also bound in the heart of Jason Schultz, and I know that to be true. And Jesus alone is the source of hope for both of us. Praise God that in his sovereign goodness and grace, he's even today working his plan for something new, something better, something that he'll once again be able to say, that's good. Because the idea of what what Jesus and Paul have said is that just like a, a woman in labor experiences pain and ultimately a new child, Jesus says all of this this. Sin bringing death is just the beginning of sorrows. Or Paul says the whole creation groans and travails and labor pains until now. It's got to be that way now, but someday that pain is going to give way to a new creation. Something better and something good. Because while war is not new and war is not going away, the greatest war is already won. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus tells the disciples how to behave in in this time. Take heed to yourselves. For they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. As Jesus taught his disciples there on the side of the Mount of Olives, He did not warn them about the war to come and say, so pick up your swords and load up your AR-15 and brace yourself for battle. Now, let me just say for clarity, I'm not making a call for pacifism here. The day of battle may well come. But what Jesus tells them is to to go on the offensive with the gospel, right? The, The good news must be published to all nations, That is the spiritual warfare to which we're called at this span of human history. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's not at all difficult for me to read Ephesians 6.12 and, and picture Vladimir Putin is one of those spiritually wicked, evil-influenced, dark rulers that have been lifted up in the world. But you realize that what Paul is saying there is that the enemy of the Christian is not a a flesh-and-blood person. It's not somebody who's standing in front of you so that you can punch them in the nose. The enemy of Christianity is the wickedness and the evil that is still bound in the hearts of all humans. And only Jesus can strike a blow against that enemy. 
This is the gospel. This is the, the good news that Jesus has come into this fallen, sin-plagued world and he's been obedient. He's been the, the only man who's perfectly submissive to the authority of God. And having satisfied obedience in our place, he then went to the cross and suffered the consequences of sin and rebellion in our place. And he rose from the grave to, to live forever. Every death-bringing sin has been utterly defeated by the life-giving Christ. And so now as we have this biblical worldview where we see the effects of sin that are ravaging the world, whether it's through earthquakes or famines or it's through wars and rumors of wars, we've been armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our message. That's our, our battle cry. Even though clearly the world that's arrayed in conflict around us is not going to surrender easily to that call, Jesus says in verse 9, take heed, right? Be on guard. There's going to be opposition. You'll be brought before authorities by secular folks. You could be kicked to the curb by religious folks. You could end up beaten and abused. But in all of it, when you enlist in this war, you will never be defeated because Jesus Christ has already won the victory. And can I point out that Jesus is being very clear about something else here? The selfish and wicked world leaders who carry out wars and rumors of wars, they are the very targets for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says there in verse 9. You will stand before governors and kings, he says, but what are we supposed to do if we stand before them? We're doing it for his namesake. We're to declare his name, stand before them for his cause. Look, I don't expect I'll ever have an opportunity to meet Vladimir Putin, but if I did, I don't think that my goal would be to scold him about his actions in Ukraine. Although, for the record, I wish he would change course. I wouldn't start the conversation scolding him about invading his neighboring kingdom. I'd start by warning him of the consequences that he's one day going to face when his own kingdom is annexed by Christ's kingdom because that day is coming. And what I want you to know this morning is nothing different from that. The same wickedness and evil that, that leads to the kind of bloodshed and violence that we're seeing in Ukraine, the very same evil resides in the darkest corners of your heart. But there is peace to be found through embracing the good news that Jesus has defeated sin on our behalf. Repent of your sin, trust in him, and then await the day that he'll do for the world around you what he has done for your very soul because the day is coming. Jesus addresses this down in verses 24 through 27 when he says the sun's gonna go dark, the moon won't be seen, Jesus is gonna come, he says, in the clouds with power, great power and glory. Jesus is going to return and declare himself the victor of the real war to end all wars. And when that day comes, we won't have peace in our time. We will have peace for all time. The prophet Isaiah pictured this day in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. This is what he says. It says, it shall come to pass in the last days 
Then the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Until the day when the rule of King Jesus leads the world to start using their swords to plow fields and their spears to to harvest. We can expect wars. Jesus said this this is going to happen and it must happen. It's God's plan and purpose that it would happen. Nothing in this sin-plagued world would make us expect anything different than that. It's God's plan. It, what, it is what must be until Christ returns in glory. And in that day, we'll find true peace with the return of the Prince of Peace. Okay, let's Go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll sing a hymn. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the comfort of your word and for your son Jesus Christ who spoke these words. Father, as we see the evidence of his teaching and see that wars and rumors of wars will persist, we ask that you would comfort the hearts of your people wherever they abide. Father, while we don't know our brothers and sisters and Christ in Ukraine, we trust and we know that they're there. We ask that you would comfort their mind with your promises, that you'd strengthen their resolve, that you'd protect their lives for your glory. Father, give them confidence and courage this day and in the days ahead. Father, we also ask that you would be with the the Russian people, many of whom find themselves as helpless pawns under the thumb of this evil dictator. We ask that you'd protect those who are publicly protesting this war. Please guide our nation and our leaders that we would face this aggression with with wisdom and effective resolve. Lord, most importantly, help us to remember that all the wicked actions of this sin-plagued world have an expiration date. You know our hearts long for the day when the people of every kindred and tribe and people and nation will use their voices to praise Jesus in his everlasting kingdom. And so to that end, we pray, even as he taught us, to your kingdom come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.